Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay and my Simic modification would be a turtle shell. Cowabunga, dude. I'm Lorelei Weissel, and my Simic modification is just my real life right now. I was expecting the, the crab hands, but okay. I'm Brian Dawes, and I would want wings. And I'm Ashley Barrow, and uh, my Simic modification would be to make me taller. That's legit, Lorelei. Yeah. It caught me off guard, yeah. I got real. This week, we have a couple excellent questions we're going to talk about. Wait, we have a news item first. Oh, we have we have news. The calendar. The wall calendar? Is it a sexy calendar? Oh, yeah. Oh, is that is that new? With the Will and Rowan thing? Is new. Oh, yeah. You know, can I can I tell you something? What? I've had I've had one of those since November and I like didn't bother to read the bios in it. Oh my god. <laughs> Shame. 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 I need a I need a handbell. It features different planeswalkers on different months with nice big high res images of their art and a nice little biography to the side. And it's mostly who you would expect, Jace, Bolas, and Garrick, and stuff like that. But an interesting thing that Tags Five Colors over on Tumblr discovered when they were looking at the images on the Amazon page that we will link to is that September 2019 is for Rowan and Will Kenrith, the planeswalking twins from Battle Bond. And the little bio on there has new information that we haven't seen publicly anywhere else. So I'm just going to read that blurb. The twins, Rowan and Will Kenrith, are unique among planeswalkers in that they share a single planeswalker spark. Rowan, bold and impetuous, augments her swordplay with crackling electrical energy that dances along her blade, while Will, reserved and contemplative, uses his power over ice to control the flow of a fight. Together, they travel from plane to plane, following the knightly virtues from which they were raised in pursuit of achieving the most good. That's some interesting stuff. It confirms what we knew that Will is a cryomancer. It also confirms that Rowan is an electromancer, which was a little questionable based on her art. There are a lot of people assuming that she was pyromantic. And the fact that they share a planeswalker spark is weird, because we've never seen that before. We have Bolas and Ugin, who are twins, but they have their own sparks. We're yet to see what the metaphysical implications of two beings sharing a spark are, but I would like to see that one day. And then the last thing is that we now have learned that they are following knightly virtues. And as the tall, statuesque, blonde-haired, Anglo-looking planeswalkers... I wonder if that means they are from the kind of Arthurian or high fantasy plane that people have been asking for for a while now. You look at the style of their greaves and swords and their capes, and I could definitely see them fitting right in with very swords and sorcery, kings and castles type world. Let's move on to listener questions. So our first question comes from Josh underscore pralt on twitter and josh's question is in magic lore where do spirits go when they die they can be reanimated in the game so you'd presume it's not poof out of existence is this just a disconnect from game to lore 
Even Regicide says destroy, not exile. Thoughts, Vorthos cast. So, this is a really good question. We were really excited when we got this question because this is a, a fun metaphysical question to tackle. The general answer, how it usually works in the multiverse, but as everything in the multiverse, there are exceptions. Uh oh, we got an invader. Yes! Hey, buddy! You want to talk to my podcast? Okay. All right, here. Here's the thing. All right, Daddy's going to answer a question. So the way it usually works in the multiverse is that souls come from the ether and return to the ether. So when you die, usually... Are you munching something on my (laughs) podcast, child? That is like rule number one no-no. All right? You You can't be cutely munching while daddy's trying to give a serious nerdy answer no you do not touch any of the buttons on daddy's microphone yes no arjun arjun no 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 all right i think maybe it's time for you to go back with mommy all right give me give me your kissy go do your bath time with mommy give me a hug and kissy you are talking to them all right, does anyone have any question for Arjun? It's his favorite color. What's your favorite color, Arjun? Um, green. Yeah! What's the best snack? Um, goldfish and ketchup. Goldfish and what? Ketchup. Ketchup? Goldfish and ketchup? What's the best animal? Um, giraffe. Giraffe? Really? That's an interesting one. Any other questions before this boy goes and does his bath time? Do you like penguins? Mm-hmm. That was a yes. Okay. Everyone says that you're their favorite, buddy. Uh, but now it's time for your bath, okay? Say bye-bye. Say bye-bye. Say bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah. Go with mommy. I burpee. Yeah, you did burpee. Thank you. Oh, that is too cute. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from the Aether and returning to the Aether are how it usually works. The reason we know this is it's it's hinted and talked about a little bit in various places where souls return to the Aether. Sparks are, in the, the few places they've been defined, they've been defined as a piece of the blind eternities imprinted on a soul, which... How would a piece get imprinted if it didn't come from the blind eternities? So it makes the most sense if souls are etheric. As to how they return, I mean, it is possible to reconstitute a ghost. So you could, like, dispel a ghost, and they might be gone for a little while, but they could pull themselves back together. And that's usually, flavor-wise, what's being represented. If you don't, like, kill them outright, like Kaya does, you know, it can be a lot harder. So there's also a difference here between spirits and souls. Spirit as a type doesn't necessarily mean a soul or someone's ghost, because we have spirits like angelic spirit, we have spirits like the spirits of Kamigawa, we have spirits like the spirit avatars on Lorwyn. What it usually means by that are more like intangible or insubstantial beings 
when those kinds of things have a spirit subtype. Because we know angels don't usually have actual souls. We know demons don't have souls, but we could see a demon spirit, potentially. And what that usually means is, like I said, they're just kind of intangible. I think the simple answer there is that they are all made of ether. And this goes back to a kind of metaphysical question of the multiverse. Namely, how does reality work? How does matter work? And for like spirit types, they tend to not really directly interact with the matter of what we would call reality in most cases either. So that's why they can go through walls and all this other stuff. That's what Kaya can access is she makes herself intangible in that etheric capacity without being dead and is able to kill spirits that way. To clarify, we have already seen demon spirits in magic. The Oni on Kamigawa are demon spirits. All the Kami on Kamigawa are god-like beings, but you know, there's there's Okagachi at the top and like all kinds of local Kami in the middle, but the the Oni are pretty powerful Kami and tend to start cults and have patrons and and whatnot especially among the ogres but they they are kind of functionally i even hesitate to use the word demigod as if none of the kami are necessarily gods but like there there's there's like a higher tier of godliness to the oni than there are to most regular kami if you look at it in the way that like shintoism views gods rather than the way most of us through the western lens would view gods yeah it it makes a lot more sense and you could reasonably call them gods but yeah it's they're an interesting case they're a special case it's like in spirited away you have different tiers of gods where some are super powerful and are acknowledged as such whereas others are super low powered and they're they're the mundane they're spirits of mundane items i'm the god of these five rocks Sure. Or you could be the spirit of a river or something like that, which is acknowledged to be pretty powerful. Or uh, of a super old tree like the Kodamas. Different spirits have different realms of power, and if they die, like, sometimes they reconstitute depending on which plane you're talking about, sometimes they don't. And so that's a perfect segue to talking about afterlives in the multiverse. So what I mentioned before is what usually happens if there's not some sort of outside factor working on a plane. So we already know a number of planes that have afterlives or have an unusually high number of of spirits, and there are various reasons for that. Now, ghosts are pretty common, and they happen for various reasons. It'd be hard to pin down exactly, but they happen for the same reasons that superstition in the real world would say ghosts would happen because there's some kind of great trauma or something along those lines and i would assume the soul just refuses to depart the plane for whatever reason still got business in this mortal world right (laughs) right but then there are places like agairam on ravnica when it was there it was this kind of pocket dimension that prevented the spirits from returning to the ether And so spirits would linger on Ravnica for longer than usual. And when they did depart, they would usually end up in a gyrum and, you know, occasionally be able to filter through. It was kind of like a sieve keeping the spirits from leaving. They could still eventually leave, but it was keeping a lot of them backed up. 
Or like a dam. The metaphor that a lot of folks used for Agyrum was that there was a blister on Ravnica, metaphysically, in the way that blisters fill with pus. The spirits and ghosts of Ravnica were, like, filling this metaphysical blister-like pus, and they were just stuck. And then when the mending happened, that got fixed up, and that kind of popped right off of Ravnica. And everything's back to normal, mostly, there. So spirits do kind of linger sometimes on Ravnica, but in no way like they used to. The exception, as Lorelai pointed out, is the the Orzhov. The Orzhov have special magics that are attuned to spirits. Obviously, the Abzadat, the Ghost Council, is a collection of spirits, and so they have a way of anchoring spirits through hieromancy, essentially, through this sort of debt process. So the Abzadat get to stick around because they have wealth, but when their wealth dries up, they are no longer a member of the Abzadat, and they kind of disappear is the way it's, it's implied to, to happen. So that's how the Abzadat come and go. And then, you know, the Orzhov have indebted spirits, which we see in Ravnica Allegiance as being released from their debts by Kaya. We've also seen this kind of thing with the Custodi and their magic on King Brago in Fiora. So, you know, this kind of magic happens fairly frequently. I, I wouldn't say it's, it's not super common, but it's not that hard to, like, summon a spirit or a ghost or something either. In Estrad, we've seen a lot of spirits that don't depart. I personally think it has to do with the moon silver and its imprisonment qualities keeping them from being able to return to the Blind Eternities, but it's not really ever been explained very well, but it's the same kind of thing where, you know, the spirits get caught by something. In this case, it's not really an afterlife. They are caught by on the plane itself, kind of like on Ravnica. With Innistrad, there's a state called the Blessed Sleep that the local religions refer to to describe the final resting state of a spirit, which is implied to be return to the ether. Spirits and souls need to be coaxed to the blessed sleep. They don't naturally do it, whereas they might naturally do it on other planes. So the reason Innistrad has all these geists is because the spirits are having a difficult time returning to the ether. At least that's what's strongly implied by a lot of the metaphysics of the plane and this whole ritual of the blessed sleep. So Part of the reason they have this whole burial process and why graveyards are such an important part of previous Church of Avicen, the current Church of Sigarda, and all the folk beliefs that have existed for millennia is that there's something weird about Innistrad where ghosts are not passing on beyond the plane in the way that they should. There's also a great example in the Theros Underworld which essentially captures people as physical beings in the underworld. What's interesting is that if someone tries to escape the underworld, they split into Eidolons and the return. That's another example of souls being captured by the magic of Nyx, essentially, and not being able to go to the Blind Eternities, and they have their own afterlives there. And the way they can come back is that similar reason. 
to wrap up the answer to this question, I know this was a very long answer, but the reality is the flavor is going to vary a lot on how they essentially get reanimated in game. Some of it is going to be flavor disconnect. So like Regicide says destroy, not exile. That's a gameplay issue. Realistically, Kaya is doing what she does in her most recent Planeswalker card where she's exiling them. Simple answer is it's complicated, but hopefully we shed a little bit of light on what's going on there. Our next question comes from Bugberry91 on Twitter. Bugberry asks, having read the Simic story, I had a question. What color pair, not guild, do you think is the most misunderstood or has the most wildly different ways of being represented? I'm going to let you three go first, and then I want to answer last. So, Lorelai, why don't you go first? Oh, it's easily white-blue, because Watsi keeps turning them into fascists. It's true on Ravnica, it's true on Kaladesh, it's true on almost every plane. White-blue inevitably becomes this inflexible bastion of, we're going to correct everybody's way of life, and there's nothing you can do about it, and I'm getting kind of tired of it. There's just, like, no compassion and no empathy anywhere in that color pair in the multiverse. And they need to stop interpreting those colors that way. Yeah, it's interesting because then you'll get people like Noyan Dar or, or Wafa Hazid. Yeah, or Teferi. Teferi is a perfect example of that. Uh, Teferi used to be kind of that no compassion guy, though. Like, Lorelai hated him for the longest time because of that. Yeah, but his his newer card, and especially his story arc, has made it feel a little bit better in that he has striven to improve himself, and he's willing to step into these this awkward situation where he's regaining his spark even though he doesn't feel it, but he deserved it for the greater good. Like, he did improve himself, and that's the big part of the blue part of that, that card in the story arc, and the white part is doing something he doesn't really actually want to do all that much for the greater good. All right, Ashley, what do you think is the most misunderstood color pair? I'm going to say... That's so hard. I'm going to probably say um, red and green because I've gone up about this before, but that color pair is generally portrayed as being like very, very mindless and barbaric when that's not necessarily the case. Being red and being green doesn't make you unintelligent. Red-green, you're right, is almost always represented as, as kind of like wild and stupid. And I mean, it, it looks great on the cards, but that's not necessarily what red and green might be in real life. So, Brian? It's not something that I, I really found a good answer for, because realistically, there are aspects of all of the color combinations that don't get a lot of press just because of the nature of the game being so combat-oriented. I really feel like Rakdos can get a bad shake of it. Even my own personal preference of a guild in Selesnia, especially the way that they were shown in the uh, Gruul story, is something that, you know, then people who've called Selesnia cults, and there are aspects of it where you can, it's not as harmonious as you would want to appear, like, there's just a lot of ways where all of these guilds have shades of something where they aren't, um, or not even guilds, but color combinations have shades of something that isn't really displayed in a way that's conducive for the card game, this combat card game that we play. It's really complicated, but yeah, 
I, I'd, I'd go ahead and say Selesnya just because often we don't very ha- we don't have many antagonists that are green white. We don't have I don't think we've had a really good green antagonist at all. So like we have I mean Gaddick Teague and the Kithkin on Lorwyn weren't as rosy and perfect as you would want them as you would expect them to be just being the the halfling type of people that they were if you know well, like they're not halflings but you know what i'm saying but it's um i mean they're basically half halflings <laughs> that's what they're modeled on because of the combat aspect of this game a lot of these colors don't really get a whole lot of depth to them just because of how the game is faced or focused and I think Nikki's, Nikki Drayden's story has, stories have done a lot for that. Yeah, I agree. So I'm, I'm going to go real quick. So one thing I'll note is when you said the guilds, Brian, I think the guilds are one of the big problems in the way color pairs are represented because people tend to expect the guilds. I mean, heck, most people call the color pairs by the guild names no matter what plane they're on. But honestly, I think Black Red is a, a great example because you have characters like Zancha and Angrath in there who are very interesting, complex characters who in certain situations could be a hero or be someone very beloved, not villains, but they will also murder their way across the plane to get to whoever they love. And, you know, having them being kind of typecast as the Rakdos type is... You know, it's a little disappointing, especially since I have a lot of characters I like in Black Red, like Doretti. So that wraps up our questions for the week. Now we're going to talk about Magic Story, The Principles of Unnatural Selection. This was finally the Simic story, which I was very happy to read because the Simic are my favorite guild. And we follow a teacher named Medge. And she is a merfolk who is helping the kind of young tween merfolk how to learn about the world and be good merfolk in merfolk society. And this is really our first look into the merfolk culture. We've not spent that much time looking at the way they live in Return to Ravnica block, and we don't have anything from them from the original block because they hadn't come out of the ocean yet. The merfolk tweens are organized into groups called clutches, and each teacher controls one clutch, and then they have a... It's like an academic decathlon at the end of whatever their instructional period is, where they all compete, and the top number of individuals go on to do greater things within the guild. So the problem for Medge is that her clutch is very small. She is down to eight kids, which is been shrinking educational season after educational season because more and more individuals are going over to the genetic engineering of the Guardian Project. And this sets Medge up very early as a utopian. That is the political movement within the Simic that believe in slow, steady progress and working with the rest of Ravnica to slowly improve it into a better state. And that is on the opposite end of the adaptationists who believe that to build a better Ravnica, first we have to build a better Simic, and we're going to do that through a genetic experimentation on humanoids and 
that's who all these huge classes are forming under. Medj starts with trying to teach her students very basic observational skills by looking at a Simic monk and trying to figure out how long they have been fasting. The kids are kind of getting it, and then Zagana's niece, Kazira, is off away from everyone else, just kind of staring into the ocean. And Medge is a little worried because she's not really participating. And Medge is like, hey, Kazira, how you doing? And then she's like, the monk's been fasting for seven weeks. And Medge is like, okay, how did you figure that out? Because that's correct. And you haven't even inspected for any clues that you're supposed to look for. And Kazira goes onto this whole thing about the zooplankton exoskeletons that have been piling up in front of her face and how she's been counting how fast they have been dying. And so she looked at the layers of dead zooplankton that have built up on the monk and counted the layers and did the math to calculate the death rate and came in about a little under seven weeks, which was the correct answer that you could find through more conventional means. So she already sets off that she's pretty brilliant person who is thinking about these complex problems in ways that no other Simic are at the moment. But here's the problem. Midge's kind of academic rival shows up with a huge class, lots of crab claws and all kinds of augmentations from the Guardian Project. So they bicker and and they have a small little challenge about who's going to send more students through the next phase of their education. And Midge realizes, look, we've got to do something really impressive. Let's go have kind of a learning adventure, kind of Miss Frizzle style, which should key you in onto how well this whole thing goes. Not well, as we learn. <laughs> hey, Miss Frizzle never lost a kid. <laughs> Medge doesn't lose a kid either. Spoiler alert. I mean, one of them did uh, take off his helmet on Pluto and freeze to death, so but he was fine. Yeah, Miss Frizzle did let a kid take off his helmet on Pluto, which should have killed him, and, and that's just, you can't do that. So Medge takes her students to investigate these crises that are hunting and killing these giant leviathans that are natural to the area. So they watch a crisis take down a leviathan and all these other crises come over and eat the thing and pretty much pick the skeleton clean pretty quickly. And then they start hearing this weird voice. And they're like, what the heck could that be? Is it one of these other fancy genetically engineered students trying to taunt us and make fun of us? Nope. Turns out they're next to a shipwreck. So they're like, oh no, what could be in the shipwreck? So Medge goes in with two of her students, and they start investigating. And they find this huge Orzhov coin kind of embedded in the deck of the ship. Then they see a ghost. And this ghost appears, Andrik, the very sad, lonely ghost, and his sunken ship, the Heckless. And Andrik tells his sad story about how he was an Orzhov preacher, just going around Ravnica trying to bring word to the people. And he was attacked by pirates and sank down in the river, you know, 80 years ago, which was before the mending and shortly before the events of the original Ravnica block. And, you know, he's been stuck here and he really needs to bring his ship back to the surface. But, you know, as a ghost, he can't really do that because he can't interact with the physical realm very well. So they're like, okay, yeah, we can help you. So they prepare a bunch of 
spells and store them inside seashells. And then the Leviathan that was eaten earlier has this big bright red sack that it inflates for like mating purposes. So they put that inside the ship and inflate it with air and turn it into a big balloon and start guiding the ship, trying to avoid crises as they go. As they're getting closer and closer, they realize that this ghost can only really move certain distance away from things as, as the ship starts getting shaken up by a nearby crisis. And then they start realizing that there really isn't anything of value on the ship. And then the truth comes out. Andrik isn't an Orzhov preacher who was viciously attacked by pirates. He is a pirate himself, and he had preyed on the old Simic all those years ago. So they're getting attacked by a crisis that is half shark, half crab. But it doesn't sound like it's a shamble shark. It sounds like more like it's jaws with crab legs and claws. They end up snatching this golden medallion that Endric is bound to and throwing it inside the Krasis's mouth. And so the Krasis, because he's bound to that amulet, he kind of gets sucked into the Krasis. And they're like, Whew, got rid of that. So they're at Zonat 5, which is where the helical stair is, which is this huge public... I guess it's like a public park, but there's also a museum because they find a bunch of stolen Simic relics. If I remember correctly, it's the one that the, the Zonat that's like the biggest tourist destination. Yeah. The helical stair is built for the purpose of showing the rest of Ravnica what the Simic are all about and what the Zonats are. So it's this big kelp made stairway that twists down into the water and you can kind of go down and check it out. It's like a it's kind of like a park. It's like a sightseeing tourist thing. But but again, they have this history of the Simic Museum. And so one of the relics they find that Andrik had stolen was this key rune that belonged to Momir Vig. So they go over to the museum because, you know, when you find ancient relics on sunken ships, you have to shout, it belongs in a museum! Because that's, that's just what you do. <laughs> But in this case, the museum is returning it to the people it actually belongs to. So they go in, and there's some cool exhibits. They have, like, a whole hallway dedicated to Momir Vig, which I find questionable, because he is not a good guy. But the weird and cool thing they have under very heavily armed guard is the last known cytoplast on Ravnica which is the type of magical globules that mutated genetic information that the original Simic Combine used, and that was the whole graft mechanic. So Medj and Kazira are having a conversation where Kazira's like, you know, I don't think I want to continue with the schooling thing. I think I want to be a biomancer and try and, like, actually solve real problems using genetic engineering because, like, you know, we could maybe use genetic engineering for good. And, like, give these leviathans some adaptations to help them survive, but not necessarily weaponize them and turn them into unnatural predators or anything. And Medj is like, oh, that's great. What a great idea. But then their little class clown student is investigating the cytoplast a little closely, and when Medj yells at him, he turns too quickly and his fin knocks over the display. And that cytoplast lands right on Medj's chest and starts mutating her, and she grows tentacles with eyes on the end, and everyone's kind of horrified, and 
as someone who's been very anti-genetic engineering, she's like freaking out about it. So all these guards in the area start drawing their weapons, but then all the students surround her and protect her. And Medj is like, look, what happened happened. There's nothing you can do about it now. It was clearly an accident. We brought you this really fancy key rune, so like, you're welcome. And they all get thrown in prison. So Zagana shows up, helps get them released. Kazir is going to be okay because her aunt is the speaker of Zone Out 1. The merfolk version of It's Good to Be the King. Or at least related to them. The issue is they kind of all get banned from the Zonats forever. Six of the eight students end up moving on because Kazira doesn't follow through on the program when they're at the graduation ceremony. She's already wearing her biomancer's robes in the audience because she's super smart. And then uh, the kid who knocked over the cytoplast didn't make it either because he just needs a little more time. He's still a little rowdy and young and Medge thinks, you know, another cycle, he'll be good to go. Medge meets up with her academic rival and, you know, instead of bragging, she's like really nice and says like, hey, look, you kind of follow more principles of the upwelling that things need to change where I was an extremist that followed the holdfast and said that things didn't. And maybe we were both a little too extreme and uh, maybe we should meet in the middle and work together sometime. And her rival says, yeah, actually, that would be nice. And that's a very wholesome way to end the story. There's quite a bit to talk about with this one. I really liked the quote-unquote Orzhov ghost. There was some slang in here that was pretty new, that the merfolk under the oceans refer to, like the Ravnica as we know it, as Upworld or the Drylands. As the story was going through, I found it really interesting that they dropped the definition of a Zonot into the story. Like, I don't think they've done that before with, you know, that kind of magic jargon. I don't think in a story. They do it in other articles occasionally. Whenever a vocabulary word like that shows up, they'll throw in a definition, whether it's a mechanical or or those things. So I was glad to see it show up this week. I am not sure what the parental discretion warning was for this time, but I I mean, sure. Okay. I think they might have just left it. It's left over from the first weeks. Yeah. It may just be something we see going forward with these. And of course, we have to make the obligatory, you know, Finding Nemo reference here. It's a a school of children under the sea. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought, too. When I'm going to get lost. But the one thing I really wanted to talk about was that cytoplast. Because the way the cytoplasts worked in the original Ravnica series, they didn't manipulate your DNA. They manipulated themselves to become your new arm or your new leg. And then they gathered information from you, I guess. So like when experiment, what was it? Is it said experiment, Kraj? When that came around, it pulled all these things back, and the people weren't mutated. So I think what's interesting, because that was one of the last cytoplasts, it's like the bridge between the old Simic and the new Simic, where, at least how I'm thinking of it, is rather than that being like a a continuity error or something, that 
it is showing that the Simic were already heading in the genetic engineering direction before they kind of broke up. And then when things came back together, they started developing it more and just skipped the cytoplasts entirely. So it's like a missing link between the old Simic technology and new. Could also be just a residual cytoplast that was on something else and had gathered that genetic data and was storing it all these years. And I mean, we also saw some mutants with the original Simic too. So maybe they were doing the genetic engineering using cytoplasts, but it wasn't their big thing. I thought that was very cool. I thought the Momir Vig references were very cool. You're right. It's it's weird that as like a villain, quote unquote, he uh, got a whole wing of a museum, but he was a guildmaster for like 1200 years. Putting a whole fancy museum exhibit to honor Momir Vig is like doing something crazy, like putting a monster like Andrew Jackson on your money. (laughs) Wait. (laughs) Very true. I thought you were going to go with the Augustan Station. Like all of all the villains from the original Ravnica are like, or some of them at least are kind of slyly honored somewhere. So like in the D&D book, Augustine got, the whole station got named after him, even though he was the dictator who tried to take over Ravnica. Did the book specifically state it was named after Augustine Fourth? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Because there are potentially at least three other Augustines. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. All He's right. probably, I mean, there probably was only four. I mean, imagine why would someone name someone after him? Like, okay, well... <laughs> We're not going to use this name anymore. So this one was interesting because it was just very wholesome. Like a lot of these stories had very real like societal issues that were discussed with the layer of fantasy on top. In the words of Marty McFly, they were heavy. Yeah. This one isn't as heavy, but... I think there's still a little bit of it there. You know, they've got this this other class who's essentially more privileged. You know, their parents have given them these adaptations to get farther. And so, you know, all the other kids are falling farther and farther behind. But, you know, it wasn't kind of, a, it wasn't as, like, in your face as some of the previous ones were. It also didn't connect to any other story, which I was a little surprised at. Because we saw in the Is It story, there was a Simic scientist who had injected that main character with a mutation and had turned her into a monster for a bit. And I was expecting the Simic story to pick up on that event, but that didn't happen. So I still don't know when that might even loop back in, and it might not. So this is not really a story that impacted or was impacted by the others, which I think is a little weird at this point. Yeah, considering we have seven others that have connected to one another up until now. Well, first of all, we should remind our listeners that the week of Valentine's Day, there is not a magic story. So we're skipping a week. And then the last two are Orzhov and Azorius, which I think are going to be the most interesting, both to see how this overall theme that's been running, the threading through all of these stories lands. And because, you know, they're the two that they also have, you know, 
planeswalkers in charge now. And I wonder how they're going to address like Dovin Bun and the kind of quasi-fascism of, or straight-up fascism of the Azorius, or the way the Orzhov have been heading as well. All right, let's move on to final thoughts. So my final thought is, I got nothing. (laughs) I will mention that I looked up a bunch of black-red legends for that question earlier and i saw the duretti art again on kaladesh and it's it's still my favorite lorelei i don't know i I don't really have a final thought this week i i will note though you you said that there's not going to be a magic story on the 13th but you said that we're be skipping a week that that is magic story is skipping a week we're still having a podcast next week oh yeah my final thought is fixing your unclear language yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I feel like people who work with me, that's something they have to do all the time. <laughs> yeah, I edited your articles for MGG Salvation, so I know what that's like. Ooh, burn. Oh, oh it hurts. It hurts. Ash- Ashley, go while I bleed out here. My final thought is that I'm watching a video of a dog eating a chicken wing, and so I'm a little distracted. But it's a really good video, so visualize that dog eating a chicken wing. Alright, Brian? It seems that there have been a lot of Ravnica-based D&D shows popping up, and I'm really interested. Ruben's show got renewed, so they're going to do a season two here soon. I believe there was another show that I can't remember the name of off the top of my head right now that I saw that was going to get started here soon. The Jace Bellerin Must Die one? I didn't see that part of it, but possibly. Yeah, that's the only one I know of right now. Then yeah, it must be that one. But um, yeah, and I think LRR started one as well. It's really interesting, and I have yet to actually play a Ravnica campaign, so I'm slightly disappointed in myself for that. Magic D&D, and I've been playing a lot of D&D. I've played more D&D than I have Magic, to be honest, or I've at least DM'd more than I've played Magic in the past couple of weeks. As I said to Kaburi, it's really spending too much on magic cards that unites magic players not actually playing magic. And with that, don't forget that for our Patreon subscribers, if you are in our Discord server, we also do a weekly Ravnica D&D campaign. So um, if y'all would like to tune in, that is on our Discord server and we get together on Mondays when we can. If that interests you, or if you just want to support the show, you can head over to patreon.com slash thevorthoscast. Everyone who supports our show gets access to that Discord server. We have Vorthoses from around the world having a great time. The D&D thing has been very fun so far. We've got a couple tiers with a couple other benefits. We do a monthly bonus episode where we talk about something weird topic that we wouldn't cover in a normal episode. And then... Our highest tier is a live listen. We record Thursday nights around 7.30 Eastern. And if you donate at that tier, you can hop in a room to listen to us record live, which lets you get the episode early and lets you hear lots of fun behind-the-scenes stuff, like when Arjun popped in earlier this episode. All right. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast.